dispensing wisdom, inciting awesomeness, scaling joy. Welcome to the Mojo Studios podcast. It's time to turn down the deluge of distractions and put yourself in a mindset of receptivity and growth. Absorb, digest, apply, repeat. Dinner is served. Well, hey everybody, we are live, we're back, we're rocking, we're rolling. John Comfort and I'm Joe McCarthy with Mojo Studio and we are continuing our rich and enjoyable series about good stuff. Hey John, what you up to today? Oh, not too much, just uh, this is always a great way to start the day. Happy Juneteenth, by the way, though. Juneteenth, that's right. Explain Juneteenth. Well, it, it just became a federal holiday the other day. I've been familiar with it for, I don't know, 10, 15 years or whatever, but a lot of people still don't know what it is. And uh, yet, yeah, it just the other day became a federal holiday. And I think that it is very relevant to what we're talking about. It is this um, idea of what is a more perfect union, what is freedom, actually. The double-edged nature of freedom, actually, I think, comes in submission to God and mutual submission to your your neighbor being reconciled and so it is it's very relevant it really is yeah and I, I'm, I'm actually kind of proud of our country to have come this far to make juneteenth a federal holiday and many people who don't know what it is they might push back and say well what are we doing this and why are we doing this but i was even watching uh, an nba playoff game and the utah jazz were playing and they cut away to donovan mitchell the star of the utah jazz and apparently he's coined the term free-ish. He was celebrating uh, Juneteenth and he coined the term free-ish because he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, yes, that does recognize the day when slavery was abolished countrywide, but we're still in that fight, right? We're still fighting for our rights. And so he he says that's the day we celebrate being free-ish. I thought that was pretty insightful. Yeah. Well, and in fact, too, I saw on my Facebook feed this morning, somebody posted this. It was a quote from, I think, Malcolm X, um, from, you know, 50 years ago, he just said, yeah, you know, they're going to try to distract us with little things like holidays and things like that, but real actual justice issues will remain. And, you know, I think that that is part and parcel of everything we're talking about that. Yes, we, I think we have actually turned some corners. I've talked to African-American friends of mine who have said, well, that's true. I wasn't expecting that to happen or that to happen um, or that to happen, but all those things did happen. We have come further, you know, um, and it's not to be then glib about it and say, hooray, we're done, or, you know, aren't we great that we did that? No, it's this gradual reconciling process that requires this continual process of, uh, ultimately, it's confession and forgiveness, and it is mutual. I think it is kind of still weighted towards one side and that there's these historic inequities, because that's the thing a lot of people don't get is just how big the gaps still are. I mean, they are obscene still but we're trying to reconcile these things yeah and i think i think you've touched on it already and we've said this before in previous episodes that it is a sign of progress and you've even said you know when you talk to your friends and mine too depending on what age they are and what generation they are you know the fact that obama got elected our president for one generation is mind-blowing it's like they never thought Ever that would ever happen in our country, and for the right. younger generation, it was like, yeah, of course, that's what should have happened, and it did. 
there are signs, right? And and like you said, this is a journey. It's a progress. It's not a destination, and we certainly haven't mm-hmm. reached our our ideal. Uh, but as we've mentioned many times before, too, that really what our country was founded on, the ideals that our country is founded on, if we could just live up to those, then we'd be in a much better place than we are right now. And the, the rub is that we're still learning how to live up to those. And sometimes yeah. there's resistance, and sometimes there's really a push towards that, and that's the reconciliation that we're that we're seeking. Well said, well put. We've been doing this you know long journey here this is our 11th episode my experience is relevant to this podcast i think um that i was raised you know i'm white and i'm kind of roughly blonde blue-eyed guy and i'm from the midwest i'm from a border state missouri um i was raised presbyterian Presbyterians, if anybody's known for this they are the frozen chosen i don't know if you know that phrase oh yeah therein is an entry point, really. I came out to LA and I did go to a Presbyterian church for a while. That's where we met. I remember probably being, I don't know, mid-20s, 25, 26, 27, something like that. And and I remember this, I think, because I was convicted on it, which is good. Somebody, and it wasn't just one person, but one person in particular said it really kind of pointedly, that she felt like God spoke to her through music. And I rolled my eyes. And I said, what? What, because there was a big call and you felt emotional and all this stuff? And everybody feels that. That's how music works. It's by design. It's what they're doing. You're being manipulated. And I, I realized, though, and it maybe even took a few years, that I'm wrong, that that's not cool of me. That I, and I still to this moment can feel convicted for the rolling of my eyes at that moment. And it is something, though, in a double edged way that you do have to be careful with and rigorous about, and you don't want to go willy nilly on this. But at the same time, no. Who am I to say that God didn't speak to you that way? That's awful of me to try to say that. And so it's something to be careful about in a plain way. I'm not saying like legalistically overt, undue, overly demonstrative demonstrations of your spiritual faith and all that can be a problem. But being the frozen chosen is also not the way to go either. That there's this let go and let God that has to happen. And music really does tap into that in a way that is unique, I think. And I think it points to this literal dwelling of the Holy Spirit that can be there, especially in authentic fellowship all the way to speaking in tongues, you know, you have to have it tested. You have to have it translated. You have to have somebody acknowledge this is what it means. And then there has to be agreement. I'm just saying that finding a balance, but recognizing the power of music, it's unique, it's special, it's overwhelming. And I think then that I introduced this last time, the introduction of it is you can't find a clearer example of that than in the slave spirituals, that the Holy Spirit literally came and visited and sustained and helped these people who were enduring under unimaginable hardship out in the field or in whatever context they were operating in. And the fruit that that then has borne, which we're, we'll dig into here in a little bit, is immense. It's immeasurable. It, it's, you can't even really overstate it. It should blow your mind. Before we dive into that too much further, let me layer on a little bit of my own experience. Some of this you know and some of you don't. My 
family who adopted me as as a kid were Catholics, and so we, I got that tradition and that experience up through about first grade and second grade. And then because of the disillusion of my parents' marriage, my mom was looking for something very meaningful and helpful in her spiritual journey. And so we ended up at a little Assemblies of God church in town. And you can imagine now looking back at the huge contrast between my Catholic experience and the Assemblies of God experience, there was very little controls over the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, it was encouraged that those were demonstrated. And, and sometimes it was beautiful and fulfilling and, you know, a really spiritual experience. And sometimes it was just demonstration for demonstration's sake because somebody wanted attention. I mean, it was hard to tell, especially from my age, which was which. And I wasn't even trying to discern that. But it certainly was the the responsibility of the pastor, whether he did it well or not, to discern and, and the elders, right, whether this is appropriate or isn't, whether this is from God or this is just Sally speaking out again, you know, because she doesn't have any other place to be heard. But all that to say, my experience was very broad in terms of music, where there are times, many times I could name where there was this physical sense, an overwhelming sense, like hair standing on end and goosebumps yeah. everywhere that God is here. I mean, he's here, right? He's, yeah. I, I feel like I'm immersed, almost like a baptism. Like I'm immersed in the spirit of God, just in an experiential way. Yeah. Um, but there are times I know that as a worship leader and uh, in my life and other worship leaders that I've known, that if you just pick the right songs and you put in the right order and they've got the crescendos in the right place, right. where you bring, you bring the audience along a journey where they are experiencing an emotional response to the music itself, because music does evoke that, just like you said. Now, is that the spirit of God? Who's to say? You know, I'm, I can't right. be the judge. Each person in the audience, who am I to say if they're experiencing <clears throat> the emotional response to the music itself, or if they're actually experiencing the spirit of God stirring something in them and maybe even speaking to them? I think a lot of our listeners probably have that same response you did to her, like rolling their eyes, like, God speaks to you, really? Is that where we're going? You know, that just right. sounds like, like, hoo-ha, right? That just sounds ridiculous right. or or that you're just making it up. That's a psychological thing. But I, I can say from my own experience, and you can as well, you can't describe it necessarily, but there is a sense where you know that you know this isn't something I'm making up. This isn't something yeah. that's coming from the stage. <laughs> There's the power and the palpable presence of God here around yeah. me, in me. I feel immersed in it. And so it's it's pretty amazing to be in those moments. And in fact, once you do, then you long for it even more. Once again, well put, you know, like, uh, and that reiterates that it is though a personal relationship of knowing God and being known by God and then knowing your neighbor and being known by your neighbor with this authenticity, but that 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 is the meaning of life is to know God and to be known uh, by God, and then to know your neighbor and to be known by your neighbor. But that's what everything boils down to. You have experienced kind of the whole gamut of Christian experience there too, which is uh, pretty remarkable for your sake. Yeah, and, and to just to, to make it even more rich. Uh, so after years of the Assemblies of God, while I was attending Catholic school, going to Assembly of God Church, then my mom gets remarried, and the guy is a conservative Baptist. I mean, not just in name, the name on the church that he attends is Conservative Baptist Church. And he's like, no more Catholic school and no more Assembly of God Church. So I went from 
Catholic school to public school, from Assembly of God Church to a conservative Baptist church, I'm just thinking like most people do that my experience is just what everybody's is. But what I gained in those years was an introduction and a familiarity with hymns because neither of my experiences up to that point had sung hymns very much. But the conservative yeah. Baptist church, every, every service is all about the hymns. And I didn't really necessarily care for the style of hymns all that much, but I certainly learned a ton of theology, really good, well-grounded biblical theology that was yeah. sewn into the words uh, of the hymns. And so as I grew into musicianship, which, which became a huge part of my life and still is, I'm really grateful that I had all these, this, the trifecta of uh, Christian experience from yeah. Catholic to Jews of God to conservative Baptist, because all of those realms had different music and I experienced God in all of those, which I think for me validated that it's not one denomination over another that God can show up wherever you are. God is, you know, we are the churches, which we keep trying to say. The Bible yeah. says, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not the building. It's not the name on the building. It's not the denomination that owns the building. It's me. Right. I, I am where God is. And if, if that's where God is, then I can experience him in any context. The richness of hymns, the theology found in those older hymns, and there is something to be said for tradition, obviously, um, and for history and being deferential to the wisdom that comes from the ages also. And there's a lot to be gleaned from that. Arguably, the most popular hymn of all time is Amazing Grace. Absolutely, yeah. And I think I touched on that last week for a second. Uh, I don't know. I'm not putting you on the spot here, Joe, but do you know anything about how that song um, originated? I just know it was written by John Newton a long time before I was born. I think of the scenes from that movie about Amazing Grace 15, 20 years ago. I don't know yeah. his story all that much, mm -hmm. but I do know that that is statistically the number one most popular hymn in the history of hymns. Mm -hmm. If memory serves, I think he was, he was born in the 1700s, I think, and was an active kind of adult in the late 1700s and then was an older man in the early 1800s which is when you we saw him in that movie the movie is actually more about william wilberforce right and william wilberforce was the british guy who was an activist that that got the british to end their slavery policies in the caribbean newton is in that movie and gives this powerful speech actually about and it touches on his story a little bit i think he was conscripted into this so he didn't have a choice but he was conscripted into kind of what was the merchant marine or whatever um, as a young man and he was forced to be on these awful ships where he was essentially a slave also mm -hmm. but he got drawn into the slave trade then and he was i think he was a very very bright capable guy but he was also then very full of himself um and the way that God, he contends God broke him down, one of the big moments was um, a big storm where his ship was going to go down, basically. And he essentially had the classic, God, if you get me out of this, I'll give my life to you moment. It didn't happen immediately overnight, but that song, I think, and that God saved a wretch like me is him acknowledging that he had done terrible things in his life, that he had been involved in this slave trade, and that that is a part of the, that story, that uh, his being involved in the slave trade might be why he used that word, that God would save a wretch like me. It is in that wheelhouse of these same themes. And if you dig in just a little further, because it's the number one hymn of all time, they've done a lot of just 
study of it. And um, I think studies have shown that very, very, very overwhelmingly, white people's favorite verse in Amazing Grace is, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, and so on and so on, you know, that isn't this wonderful, you know, there'll be no less days to sing God's praise, you know, and it's this wonderful moment. Whereas if you survey African-Americans, it's through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Yes. And it's yes. this song of being in process of delivery through this difficult time. Well, but it touches on all that. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it is about grace. Um, and the grace that God affords us is the ultimate one. The grace maybe then that we need to show one another is another one. But that has to be rooted in authenticity. That has to be rooted in confession and then forgiveness. Um, there's justice issues that have to be thought about and all that to make it real. Uh, but even that, just starting with that one hymn, is uh, a rich topic of discussion. And I can envision a worship service that yeah. uh, utilizes that, you know. You know, I hadn't really thought about it in this context, but save a wretch like me, even as I grew up, some people switch that word to, to save someone like me. Because oh, yeah. Because seems like it's way too strong. It's way too, too much, yeah too much right um but in the context that he wrote it that makes way more sense to me now and what i'm seeing even as you're talking and again i love when this happens in our discussions is that there is a thread of confession in there even towards reconciliation yep. that if john newton who was guilty of being a part of the slavery uh issue at the time recognized that that is wrong that's that's wrong on so many levels and that God could forgive him even of that and transform him into a better man. But by him saying a wretch like me, he was actually making a confession of sorts that what I've done to my fellow humans, regardless of their race, color, or creed, is not what God wants. This was wrong. Yeah. This was sinful. It was ab abhorrable, right? Deplorable, I guess yeah. is a better word. Yeah. Um, and I think even in that word, which is the right word, um, that there is a sense of the beginnings of reconciliation because like you said, forgiveness starts with a confession, first an admission that I've done wrong, and then a confession that I've done that wrong, and then build, mend the fences, right? Build relationships. And just that word alone is the beginning of that process. Yeah. And there's a tension there even, uh, and this is a, a good tension to try to, to find the point on. That's what we're doing. We're we want to stay in the fruits of the Spirit and the good news. There are phrases all over the Bible about slavery and it's a difficult thing if you really start to dig in and there was a slave master's religion that uh, established itself and uh, paul says several times i think slaves submit to your to your masters and all of that um and that's difficult because uh it's right there but then context matters and people don't like grappling with context I think plainly there's an arc to the Bible and that there's a story to the Bible. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. You know, there's this realization that Peter makes, especially where he says that it dawns on him and he realizes, and that stereophonic illustration comes into focus for him where he says, Oh my gosh, I realize that God actually doesn't show favoritism. But that's in tension with other verses in the Bible, because God does show favor to Mary and to other people in the Bible and whatnot. And, it, you know, Peter pr loudly says, none of us are righteous, but then God ascribes righteousness to certain people. It seems like kind of on this arbitrary way, and that drives people crazy. It makes atheists say, look how stupid this is. Right. 
and I understand the tension, believe me, I've thought about it for a long time. But I do think then it comes clear that uh, Jesus shows us the end of this story of every tribe and tongue, tongue and nation, you know, worshiping together. And this this arc and this story and, you know, from Babel all the way to the end and that it, it falls into place. And that's what we're seeing. It's what we're engaged in with that. Yes, a slave master's religion did indeed establish itself. And uh, I think we have referenced how Frederick Douglass wrote this amazing appendix saying, People say, I don't like Jesus, but no, that's not true. I like Jesus. I'm a big fan of Jesus. Um, I just don't like the slave master's religion. Whatever that is, is that's no good. And that's an important thing. And uh, But I'll just quickly move on from that then. And so, yes, you had these slaves in the field, and this, the Holy Spirit literally came and sustained them is what I think you, that's the conclusion I think that you have to come to, I think, that the Holy Spirit is this thing that um, is powerful and misunderstood and people argue about it and people are uncomfortable with it and all that but how much do we reject the holy spirit and that frozen chosenness could be that we reject the holy spirit way more than we realize because we refuse to let go and let god and that's kind of what i'm driving at on all this stuff i just speak from my own experience so that it, you know the people don't feel like we're accusing anybody of anything we're right we're we're revealing our own journey, even in these discussions. And that's when the way I see this is, is when we have a certain narrow set of expectations of how the Holy spirit works. Right. And you've already made it clear. The Holy spirit is a mystery. The Bible says it's like a wind. You don't know where it comes or where it's going. You just see what it does. You see the effects. Yeah. And I think that's intentional. Even the contradictions that you've mentioned in the Bible, these these tensions where atheists are going like, well, it can't be true because they, there's two contradictory or many contradictions, contradictions in the Bible. And I've at first when I was younger and learning about God and, and growing in my faith, I would I get uncertain about those things. I get unstable, like, well, maybe I'm missing something or maybe it isn't true. Or, you know, I, all these questions come up. But right. the older I get, the more mature I get, I think. I come to realize it's in those tensions, in those contradictions, in those mysteries, even as the Holy Spirit is a mystery, that's where I've, I feel the most assured that this is God and not man. Because here, here's the way I get it. If I can wrap my mind around it, then it surely isn't God because I know my mind is very limited in its power. Yeah. I'm a very finite person with finite experiences. So I have certain memories and I have certain imagination. But if, if, if I can figure all that out, what God is, then God's really small. But yeah. if if there are contradictions and tensions and mysteries, then I'm thinking, well, there's much more likelihood that I'm onto something there, right? That if God is infinite, then I can only see, as we've talked about many times, I can only see a little tiny minuscule sliver of his awesomeness. And right. I have to be able to let myself, and what we're saying, we should all let ourselves say, whatever my expectations of what the Holy Spirit does and how he works and how, what he looks like and even what his personality is, and all those type of things, that helps me a little bit to understand it, but that isn't the only way. And in fact, yeah. if it was, then it probably wouldn't be God anyway, because God's way, way bigger than that. Yeah, that is what we've been talking about the whole time. You know, um, The answer to so many questions actually is, I don't know. The tension between free will and God's sovereignty, ultimately you can't figure that out. And that's what most theologians are trying to do, you know, and they'll claim with varying degrees of certainty that they've got it figured out. But I'm saying, no, you have to go to the table then with other people to really actually figure anything out. And this whole thing is about authority 
And what kind of authority is godly or righteous? And servant leadership is what Jesus commands. And because of our sinfulness, that has to be then with real accountability, mutual submission, because we're sinful. How do we know anything then? I mean, there's scientific proofs, but you're never going to have a scientific proof of God. This is a sort of a historical proof, but there's always going to be argument about it. We look for patterns. Patterns is how we think we know things. That's what these stories are. And then we argue over how to tell the story then, because the pattern's really powerful. That whole question so, about who is God and where is he, that's, of course, that's the question that has plagued us all in humanity uh, for eons. But I've, I'm embracing more and more that the, these fruits of the Spirit that you've mentioned before, and for those who aren't familiar, go to Galatians 5 in the Bible, and it says yeah. these fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, tenderness, goodness, meekness, temperance, which is like uh, self-control, yeah. and faith. And, and, and I've always thought about in terms of, okay, as I'm growing in my faith, I will be more of these things. That is true. But now I'm seeing it from another side, right? Another duality here that the fruits of the Spirit actually are evidence of God, that yeah. if, if me in my brokenness, my sinfulness, my limitations can live in the fruits of the Spirit, can demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, faith, then I am demonstrating the presence of God. I am, I'm evidencing God himself. This goes to a whole other level, and we won't talk about all this right now, but uh, it's amazing to me that and it doesn't even matter whether a person professes themselves to be Christian or following Jesus or not. When their life demonstrates those fruits, those are fruits of the Spirit, whether they give yeah. the Spirit credit for that or not. Yeah, absolutely. They are the fruits of the Spirit. Yeah, It's evidence that the Spirit of God is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's powerful. So there is then a little bit more of this narrative, and I don't want to just make everything history. We are trying to get to application, and we touched on that last week, that music is hugely, hugely powerful. And, it's uh, huge! It's huge! Know, right. <laughs> to dig in on some of this history, then, you can find quotes all the way back to pre-Civil War of slave masters who they wanted to introduce religion to their slaves a little bit to pacify them, to keep, you know, slaves, submit to your masters. This is what we're doing. But they were hearing this, that God sustain you, sustains you and brings you to a place of freedom. And it resonated with them. And the Holy Spirit really did visit them. And it took, and I've had conversations with theologian friends, African-American theologian friends, white theologian friends, and that they, when they dig in, they're like, yeah, that had to be the Holy Spirit. There's no way around it. There, why else would it take otherwise? There's no way for it to take unless it really was the Holy Spirit. And then there's all these demonstrations that go from there. America, you know, broke away from Britain, but Britain's power was still growing, um, even though America broke away. Queen Victoria, who came to power in the early 1800s, she is arguably the most powerful monarch of all time. It was said that the sun never set on the British Empire in those 1800s. And their power grew and grew and grew, and it grew to this awful place. I think we had mentioned it once before in the late 1800s uh, when colonialism kind of just blew out into this awful last big fit of colonialism where they just carved up Africa arbitrarily with all these straight lines. And you still see those straight lines. And it, it still is causing problems. Um, same thing happened in the Middle East. We carved some straight lines into the Middle East, and 
That didn't work very well. Still doesn't work very well. Queen Victoria, though, being this most powerful monarch of all time, she did suffer a tragedy um, in the middle of her life. Her husband that she really, really loved passed away early, you know, relatively early in their life. And uh, she remained in mourning all the rest of her life. She wore black all the rest of her life. And she couldn't let go of that. She couldn't process that emotion. The Fisk Jubilee Singers right after the Civil War, was made up of former slaves even. Former slaves joined this gospel choir and they started singing these gospel songs and raising money for their school. And they took a tour. They went and they sang for Queen Victoria. And Queen Victoria, for a brief moment, for an afternoon or whatever it was, felt a sense of release these former slaves ministered to the greatest monarch the world maybe has ever known. And she needed it. She needed to learn from them. She needed to know what they knew and she needed to feel ministry from them. But it's important to recognize that, that she needed ministry from them. She commissioned a painting for them and it still hangs at Fisk university to this day, I believe that um, you can see it. And it was this remarkable moment. You know, in true British fashion, she didn't write a lot about it, but she did write in her journal a little bit about how, yeah, this this choir came and it, it, it felt good and it was nice and I needed it. And uh, it's an important lesson that you can learn from them. As you go forward a little bit into the late 1800s, African-American musicians started to write these things down a little bit. And the, the book on these spirituals was developing. There was a guy named Harry Burley who was maybe most instrumental in developing all of that. At the same time, the white folk in American music, they were wondering, where is our American Beethoven? Where is our American Mozart? They were like wondering, and they looked elsewhere to find the American Beethoven and the American Mozart. They invited this um, composer, uh, Anton Dvorak, over. He came over. And he said he met Harry Burley. Uh, there was a second student, an African-American guy, William Marion Cook, who uh, was sort of the founding father of jazz. But Burley and Dvorak especially connected. Um, and Dvorak was the teacher, but he learned from Burley. And Burley played for him some of these spirituals. And it was particularly, I think, go down Moses that struck Dvorak and he said, my God, that's that's like Beethoven. And that these themes and these structures and the way that the melodies worked struck a chord with Dvorak. So much so then that he very loudly and powerfully said, American music will be founded on these Native American and African American themes. He also was struck by Native American musicology. I think the people that brought Dvorak over weren't hostile to the idea, but they were also like, uh, great. Yeah, no, I don't think that's quite right, but thank you. <laughs> and it didn't make sense to them. Sure. And they didn't know what to do with that. But that is what has happened then. So I mentioned Burley and then I mentioned Cook. Cook then became this uh, founding father of jazz, and he was immensely instrumental then in the development of what became jazz. And then not probably just 20 years later, this young man named Louis Armstrong came on the scene. 
Burley stuff flowed a little bit differently, but it also then another guy that came on the scene was Duke Ellington a little bit later. And many people will say that Louis Armstrong might be the single most significant musician in American history. And other people have called Duke Ellington the finest composer in American history. Another thing that was developing there that maybe Dvorak didn't notice or I could dig further, maybe he did. In the very late 1800s and into the early 1900s, there was this notion of American popular music also that jazz would flow into and um, then the blues that would turn into R&B would flow into, but also this thing called Tin Pan Alley. And Tin Pan Alley was dominated by Jewish composers. And Jewish composers and African-American composers and Native American music influences are what became and has become American music. Um, that the contributions of jazz and then blues, which became R&B, which became rock and roll and all of that, are these immense, huge, enormous gifts that, to the world. Everybody at least will recognize the enormity of them, whether or not they like them. The jazz and the vamp and the riff and how it's rooted in discipline, but then relies then on giving people freedom. Mm. So I'd like to circle back to slaves in the field. Uh, they are experiencing atrocities that none of us can even imagine. And as you have articulated very well, there's great evidence that the Holy Spirit of God visits them in those fields and births new music in them that sustains them, right? And allows them to somehow endure, survive, and eventually overcome unimaginable atrocities <laughs> how can you not give god some credit for that because i think if it were just man-made if it were just from intestinal fortitude most people would say that that, that wouldn't sustain anybody for very long right yeah. maybe for a day or a week or a month but not for generations and then i also i hear you talking about how Dvorak comes over and he's like wow this is the beethoven of america and but even that question where's our beethoven what the people posing the question were asking, where is more of the same? We want our own, yeah. but we want it to look like what we have known, what we're comfortable yeah. with, what, what our history looks like, right? And Absolutely. so I'm thinking about how that guru from India that we talked about last week said, really, imagination is just an exaggerated version of your memory. You take what you know and what you learn, and then you imagine something bigger, and that's what you go to. And we mentioned last week, and, and I see it right here, yeah. It also is a break-in to the human experience by God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit that then can take something that's way beyond just our history and our memories and way beyond our imagination and create something new, something yeah. new. And so everybody who knows anything about music will say, what does USA provide in terms of music that's uniquely ours? And, and immediately it goes to jazz and it goes to yeah. um, these things that you just mentioned. And I think that this is evidence, again, that God broke into human history when we needed it the most and birthed something completely new, that it, it isn't just uh, a variation on the theme of before. It's not just more Beethoven or more Dvorak. It's actually something uniquely birthed out of pain, out of pain and suffering. Yeah. And there's so many places we could go with this. But it's amazing how, of all the things that, that the Holy Spirit of God could have brought to the humanity who was suffering atrocities what he brought to them to sustain them was music there's something yeah. really, really amazing really powerful about that 
Oh man, yeah. And you're you're saying what Dvorak said actually. He literally said, yeah, you that if you want to find the genius in um any society, you look to the poor people actually. Hmm. Because out of necessity, they're they're having to try to figure out how to just make it through this day, but then this thing that sustains them takes them beyond that, you know. You know, it's the nature of faith even, you know. If you feel like your 401k is what's going to sustain you, then you're kind of missing the point. The Dvorak thing, real quick, um, he then wrote this New American Symphony, which L.A. Phil plays all the time, and they'll talk about these ideas, you know, they'll touch on these ideas. Um, and it's important, and it's good, but it really kind of only goes to that music level where people just think, oh, that's nice for a moment. But you and I are saying, no, it it needs to go so much further. And the L.A. Phil, to their credit, is trying to do that, you know, that this is transformative. Basically, what I'm saying is that, yeah, musicologists know this stuff. I'm not saying anything here that people don't know. It's just that are we articulating it in a, in a way that's helpful to say it's got to be then applied and synthesized. And you've got to take it to the place where it, you let it actually make an impact that'll do something. So in the New American Symphony 2, I, I could just say if anyone wants to look it up or hear it, Dvorak employed Swing Low, Sweet Chariot then into that piece. Um, and I think Burley had helped him with synthesizing all of that and putting that together. He became this renowned teacher that taught basically every African-American singer that you, you might have heard of from the early 20th century. And one of the ones that he taught a bit, at least, was a woman named Marian Anderson. And I don't know if you've heard of Marian Anderson. Maybe not everybody has. She was a renowned voice in the early 20th century. Obviously, America didn't treat her very well, but she was able to make a living uh, over in Europe. There's other examples of uh, African-Americans going to Europe, actually, and finding success. Josephine Baker comes to mind. Uh, there was um, some jazz bands that got some traction there in World War One, actually, um, in the very early 20th century. Marian Anderson, some European composers called her the finest voice in all the world, actually. And in the late 1930s then, I don't remember if the invitation was extended exactly, but her, her invitation was definitely revoked by the Daughters of the American Confederacy. When they found out she was black, they were like, oh, no, we're not doing this. The, there was going to be a big concert in Washington, D.C., but they revoked her invitation because she was black. Eleanor Roosevelt, the president, uh, the first lady, the president's wife at the time, didn't like that. She said, this is not cool. She quit the Daughters of the American Confederacy. She had been a member, and this is part of this kind of context and how our country has developed over the years, and set Marian Anderson up to do uh, a concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. The Lincoln Memorial then is kind of the antithesis of the Daughters of the American Confederacy. Yes. But that concert, I think it was in 1938, went out over those radio waves and it was it struck a chord with the nation. And it was huge. And there she was on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And listening to the radio that day, I think he was 10 years old, was a young Martin Luther King. A young Martin Luther King was struck by this powerful proclamation of freedom on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. But then, yeah, he was like, where am I gonna give a big speech? Yeah, it's gonna be at the Lincoln Memorial. I'm gonna do it right there in the same spot that Marian Anderson did it in 1938. I'm gonna do it then in 1963. Mm -hmm. And that 
then is that super powerful uh, speech that I have a dream that I think that this lineage is there. I can't help but fast forward to even this last inauguration where they bring this beautiful African-American yeah. girl who apparently had struggled in school and now she's the poet laureate and she delivers what I think is like the iconic moment in the whole inauguration. And there was, there was fabulous musicians. There was, yeah. you know, North Brooks singing Amazing Grace, which we've talked yeah. about earlier. Mm -hmm. All of that was awesome. But this this little girl, I don't know, teenager, yeah. delivers a moving poetry, which is art, right? Right. And, and represents all that we're talking about here, this lineage, this progression to where on the steps of our capital, in the iconic moment of the transfer of power, you know, that we have a, the African-American girl who really caught everyone's attention and, and struck everyone's imagination and articulated what we all want to believe is true. Yeah. And I get all of this stuff is contentious to go back to the beginning. There is this push for diversity that is important and is about reconciliation, but it also is, it is subject to refinement, the refiner's fire, just like anybody else. And that's an important idea. But if you can't get your head around this, I'm saying then that you don't want to be reconciled. And if you don't want to be reconciled, you've got bigger problems with God than you realize. Being reconciled to God and then reconciled to your neighbor is the name of the game. You know, maybe, yeah, not everything has to be about race, but everything is about reconciliation. Yeah. As you were talking about the verses that are very contentious about slaves submitting to your masters, and some people, as soon as that comes out of our mouth, they've already cut us off. But I, I thought about that verse as you're talking in a different context than I've thought about it before. And that is, the Bible makes it very clear that our sinful nature makes us a slave to our own desires, our desires that aren't good for us, they're not good for the people around us, and they're certainly not good for our relationship with God. And so th this may be the first day I thought about these terms when the Bible says, slaves, submit to your masters, he might be talking to me. I am a slave to my own passions, which cause me to implode and be <laughs> not the man I really want to be. And if I can submit to the master with the big M who really has my best interest in mind and is the one who can help me fulfill the highest, best version of myself, it's in that submission, right? that I submit and I lay down my will to be my own master, submit to the master who created me, and then can realize everything that I am intended to be. I can become the person that I really imagine myself to be, and one that's not only reconciled to God, but then causes me to want to reconcile with those around me. You just see that in a whole new light. Which is double-edgedly true freedom. Exactly. You know, all of this stuff is about authority and who is really in charge. Is God really in charge of your life? Is Jesus Lord of your life and not just Savior? Lord and Savior is yet another manifestation of these double edges. And I get then that, yes, people do need to be appropriately deferential to authority, but authority is held to a higher standard and exactly. God will judge them at a higher standard. And so, yeah, police are an authority that people do need to defer to. But if police abuse their power, that's a bigger problem. Yeah. If they wield their power inappropriately, God will judge that more harshly. 
that's how he set it up. It's it's bottom up. It's not top down. And another thing I love about God is that he doesn't just command these things. He demonstrates them, right? Mm-hmm. God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners, enslaved <laughs> in our sin. Christ yeah. died for us to provide for us freedom. And when Jesus says the greatest among you needs to be the servant of all, as soon as he says that, he takes off all of his garbs that say he's got the authority and the right to be in charge of the group. And then he kneels down and washes their feet. And then he goes on and then dies for our sins, right? So uh, I love the fact that our master with the big M, he doesn't just tell us what to do and how we should do it. He demonstrates that for us. He lives it out to say this is the way <laughs> this is the truth i am yeah. the life right so yeah. it's uh, it's it makes it much easier to follow a leader who actually demonstrates the principles that they're yeah. commanding the people under their authority to do as well yeah and walks the, the walk and maybe we could even tie that into the walk that jesus was willing to take for us all the way to calvary and that walk though he says actually you do have to figure out how to do it too the thing you can be thankful for is, is that your burden is going to be lighter than mine. Your burden is going to be easier. Your yoke will be easier, but it's there. It is there. You've got to find the cross that you're supposed to bear as well. I have to do that. I have to look at the planks in my own eyes and do the same. Absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you, John, again, for reaching into your the recesses of your memory and your education and seeing things that um, aren't readily seen, right? And I think this is evidence of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you and through our conversations, uh, because this stuff is there. <laughs> to go back yeah. to our stereophonic painting illustration, it's there. It's, it's not like we're creating something new. It's that we're finally seeing it with new eyes. As you have said, it's just a matter of release. Like, I can't, I can't figure it out on my own. And in that in that release, then I see something that was there all along. And I, I would be remiss not to thank God Himself for revealing His truth to us that He didn't He doesn't remain a mystery all the time. There's much about God we'll never understand, of course. But there are facets of Him that He has revealed through the power of the Holy Spirit, where He does want us to be able to know Him on some level and to be known, like you said. And then in that freedom. Then, and in the love that he pours into us, then those fruits of the Spirit can pour out on those around us. And and just for those who it's not obvious, God doesn't pour out gifts to us just to fill us up. He pours it out so much that we cannot contain it. This is biblical language. Why is that? So that it will pour out onto those around us. It's it's to share freely we have received, freely we give. That's really right. model. Amen. So for uh, Joe McCarthy at Mojo Studio and my great friend John Comfort, thanks for joining us on this journey again, episode 11 of the Good Stuff uh, podcast. You can catch up if you haven't heard the previous episodes, you can catch up at mojo.studio. And we will continue these rich discussions and dive even deeper into uh, the history of American music and spirituals and how it's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our lives and in our country and how it may be the best possible tool to bring reconciliation uh, between diverse groups and uh, we'll talk more about how does that look in, in application in future episodes signing off for today thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time if this episode was beneficial to you be sure to pay it forward sharing it with others who may need a boost as well until next time dream big start small Act now. Thank you for tuning in.